you can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? One of Chairman Mao's most famous sayings was that women can hold up half the sky. It was a revolutionary statement in a pretty feudal and confusion society to say that women don't just have to be in the kitchen, that they can go out and work, that they can be educated, and that they can have lives and careers of their own not determined by husbands and children. But how true is that in modern China, and how true was that ever? The country might be getting wealthier, but societal expectations on women seem as traditional as ever. One extreme case which got me thinking about the woman's place in Chinese society is a recent case of the 30-year-old Tibetan vlogger. Lamu was set on fire by her ex during a live broadcast, and she died of her injuries two weeks later. Unfortunately, cases like hers are not rare at all. It seems it's every few months when a new domestic abuse case comes to the fore and cuts through social media. Lamu's case has restarted a national conversation about exactly where women fit in Chinese society. So are they holding up half the sky? To discuss this and more, I'm joined by later Hong Fincher, a journalist and academic, and author of Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China. So later, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So Lisa, I kind of want to talk about two topics in this podcast. First is domestic abuse and how prevalent it is in China. And the second is the role of women in Chinese society more generally and how they're seen. On the first part, to start with, Lamu's case got me thinking about domestic abuse and women's rights in the first place. But I guess it's something that I've come across quite a lot growing up in China. Anyway, that family and friends, when talking about other people's marriages, would be almost blasé about domestic abuse in the marriage, almost as a expected part of things. And when you look at the figures, the official government numbers say that a quarter of adult women have been abused by their intimate partners every single year. So... That seems like a pretty prevalent problem in Chinese society. Yeah, um, that's true that the official statistics say around a quarter of women have experienced some kind of intimate partner violence or domestic violence. But from what everything that the, the women's rights activists and domestic violence activists say in China, that those official statistics severely understate the actual extent of the problem. And of course, all of the official statistics coming from China are notoriously unreliable. Um, so I think it's safe to say that, you know, domestic violence is extremely widespread. And I, I should point out that China actually passed a landmark new law in 2016, an anti-domestic violence law. Um, it was a legal milestone. And at the time, a lot of people, myself included, were kind of hopeful that that would uh, lead to a huge improvement or some improvement anyway, in the situation for victims and survivors of domestic violence. But here we are four years after that landmark law was passed. And the law, I 
I'm, I'm sad to say it doesn't seem to have made much of a difference at all. And we can talk a little bit about that more. Things have definitely gotten better in terms of general social awareness about the problem of domestic violence. Um, and that is really thanks to the grassroots work done by a lot of feminist activists over the last you know, 10, 15 to even 20 years. And those activists were lobbying very hard for the government to pass this anti-domestic violence law, which was finally passed in 2016. So later, you say you were optimistic about this law at the time. What is in it? What did it want to do? And is that why you were optimistic? And can you talk a little bit about why you think it hasn't actually had that much effect? Sure. Actually, I should rephrase. I was not optimistic, but I was somewhat hopeful. I was heartened to see that the government actually passed this law. Because, I mean, it is important to have something on the books stating that domestic violence actually constitutes a crime. There are certain provisions of the law that are good. For example, um, it provides for restraining orders. So a victim, according to the law, if you report uh, that you are a victim of domestic violence, you're able to get a restraining order um, that means that the, the perpetrator of the violence has to stay away from you for a certain amount of time, maybe one month or one month or uh, several months. Um, that's a very important uh, form of protection for, for victims of that kind of violence. But unfortunately, um, in the years since the, this law was passed, there have been very few restraining orders actually issued. And that's not because there aren't people reporting it. In fact, there's a report done by Wei Ping, which is a, is, is a women's uh, a gender equality organization that's run by a woman named Feng Yuan. And she's been studying domestic violence incidents over the last few years. And and she finds that there there are a lot of people who are reporting it, but they're not even able to get that restraining order, even though it's written into the law. Um, and there are all sorts of other problems. I mean, there um, there should be shelters to protect these victims who need to leave their homes if if their if their partner or somebody in the home is abusing them. They really need to be able to leave the home and go to a shelter, but. These shelters are almost nowhere to be found. And then the police are also, uh, even though, uh, you know, the police are supposed to come in and, and uh, provide help, they, they don't do anything of, of the kind. There's, and I write a lot about this in my recent book, Betraying Big Brother. And I make the argument that basically China's authoritarian rule is very patriarchal and at the heart of its authoritarian rule is the subjugation of women. And so I personally believe that the government has no political will whatsoever to enforce this law because it helps to just contain violence, contain people's anger, men's anger in particular. Um, to the confines of the home. And so it, it wouldn't be in the interests of the central government to actually enforce this law properly, because if it were to do so, it would cause, in the view of the central government, just widespread chaos, because 
Um, intimate partner violence is so common. And if you know these restraining orders were actually to be carried out, that would mean that there would have to be you know, different kinds of penalties needed out to, to abusers all across the country. And so really from a security, from a political stability point of view, from the government's point of view, it's just more convenient for them to just have domestic violence be considered a private family matter. At within the confines of the home that has nothing to do with anybody's security. And even if, you know, the, uh, the, the, the woman's life is in danger and, you know, there are so many victims who've actually been killed by their abusers in the home. So this, this is unfortunately not a problem that I see going away. Why do you think that the government passed that 2015 law if ultimately its heart is not in it? Isn't it better to just sweep it under the carpet and not raise the issue at all? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I think that China really wants to be seen as a responsible international leader. It, it wants to show that it has the law on the books because it was one of the few countries that did not have a national anti-domestic violence law. So now that the law is on the books, the government officials can point to it and say, look, you know, we're meeting international standards. But unfortunately, I just don't think that it's going to be enforced properly. It hasn't really been enforced properly. And if anything, I think that the government backlash to um, something else that I write about, which is a really burgeoning new feminist movement on the ground, um, that the anti-feminist backlash is getting much stronger coming from the government. And so, but on the flip side, the, the hopeful news is that there are a lot more young women, particularly those who are college educated, who are much more aware about rampant misogyny and sexism in Chinese society. So there, you know, there are women who self-identify as feminist activists, but they're also, you know, there's a real critical mass of uh, millions and millions of women across China, particularly in the cities, college educated women, who maybe they don't call themselves feminist, but they are aware of things like domestic violence. And so so you see, you know, on the internet, there's a, a lot more chatter about how this is a terrible thing whenever, um, whenever there's a high profile case in the media. That's really interesting later because I've had many conversations with my peers in the West who wouldn't describe themselves as feminists because feminism is seen as way too fourth wave now and then they don't identify with the radical things that it proposes. But what you're saying is that in China, it's become such a politicized term that a lot of women just don't want to identify it with it either. So that's really interesting. And I, I also wondered, how much do you think that Confucianism comes into it at the risk of overstating the impact of Confucianism on modern China still because so many people do do that. 
The philosophy is millennia old and does underlay a lot of Chinese thinking. And it is a philosophy in which man comes ahead of woman. It's very hierarchical, which in the family sense turns into patriarchy. Also, it advocates harmony. So, you know, if you have any dirty laundry, you're not likely to be encouraged to air them in the name of, for example, justice. So how much do you think that Confucianism still underlays those attitudes towards women? Well, there's no question that there is a strong tradition of Confucianism in China and in quite a lot of East Asian societies, you know, Japan and South Korea um, as well. So the interesting thing about China is that, of course, it had a communist revolution. And in the course of that revolution, they overthrew these old kinds of what they called feudalistic beliefs, including Confucianism. And so the Chinese government itself, after the founding of the People's Republic in 1949, threw all of that away and said, we reject these old ways of feudal ways of thinking. We reject Confucianism. We're building a new China. And by the way, that new China also included the idea of gender equality. And gender equality was actually written into the constitution of the People's Republic. And so uh, in the early stages, the early years of the communist era, there were all sorts of ways in which women were put to work, for example, taken out of the household, put to work in the fields or in factories. And so labor force participation was very high, astronomically high compared to the rest of the world for women. But in recent years, particularly um, the last 10 years, and even more so under the new president, Xi Jinping, there has been a huge resurgence of these old kinds of thinking about gender relations. There's, uh, you know, been a revival of Confucianism. If you look at the propaganda today on state media in China, um, the propaganda pushes these very traditional gender roles where women are reduced to their role of subservient wife and mother in the home, where they're supposed to be um, in charge of the domestic sphere. They're supposed to maintain harmony in the home. And that kind of harmonious home, which is based on marriage, heterosexual marriage, resulting in two children now, that that's supposed to be the harmonious family is supposed to be the pillar of what they call the harmonious nation, which is kind of code for political stability. And so this is another reason why I believe that there is not going to be any real action taken to enforce this new domestic anti-domestic violence law. Mm. But I think these traditional gender roles, try as the communists might, probably didn't get eradicated completely when they came in. And so I wonder how much of it, I don't know, I guess how, the big question is how much did communism really infiltrate the, the culture and manage to scrub clean those past things over the last decades, mm-hmm. even before President Xi was in power? Yeah, I, I, that's a, a very interesting question. And there are a lot of different takes on that. I mean, I, uh, for one, don't think that the communists were able to completely wipe out those old traditional beliefs. 
Um, and so patriarchy has always been very strong in China. And, and in fact, even under communist rule, it was still very patriarchal, even though the public rhetoric and the propaganda was kind of saying the op- opposite, you know, as Mao Zedong was saying. His most famous saying was that women hold up half the sky. Um, and so you had these propaganda images of re- very strong women who were able to do anything that men can do. But, uh, but I really do think that um, that whole period of revolution and tumult did change people's beliefs to a large degree. And I also believe that this resurgence of very patriarchal thinking is really strongly coming from the central government, that it serves the purposes of the Chinese Communist Party because their primary goal is to ensure that they stay in power. So they're drawing on these traditional Chinese beliefs, including Confucianism, to serve their new purposes of ensuring the the Communist Party's survival. And so um, this is all part of something that I, I describe as patriarchal authoritarianism under the Communist Party. And, and you see it in many different ways, through the propaganda, through the way the security apparatus works, and, and even in the crackdown on this nascent feminist movement in China. Can you talk a little bit about that? I can see why a feminist movement would be threatening because they're campaign and they're act- literally campaigning against the way the government uh, is doing things. But can you talk a little bit about why the government would want to support the patriarchy? What is it about individual men and what they do in their private lives and their private spheres that supports the Communist Party? Just looking at some of the propaganda messages... Some of these messages involve describing the Chinese nation as a large family. Um, in Chinese, it's guozia. And so the second compound, uh, it's a compound word, the second character of guozia, which is country or nation, is the word for family. And so the um, propaganda explicitly states that China is a large family made up of you know, countless small families and that each small family, the nuclear family or the extended family, everybody plays their own proper role inside the small family and the proper role For the man is to be head of the household. The proper role for the woman is to be, you know, the the dutiful wife. She's supposed to take care of the children. She, She has babies and then she rears the children. All of these things make up a harmonious family. So maintaining the natural order of the family in which the woman plays a subordinate role to the man, that that is critical to ensuring the harmony of the entire Chinese nation. And then you look at even the figure of Xi Jinping himself. He's depicted as the patriarch of the Chinese nation. He's the protector. Well, Xi Dada, for example. 
Sorry. Uh, yes. Yeah. And so, I mean, he he used to be called Si Dada or, you know, Big Daddy Si, look, the, the big father, the big man looking over all the people in his large family. And so you see these kinds of themes recurring over and over again in Chinese propaganda. And so marriage, marriage and children, heterosexual marriage, I might add, because same-sex marriage is illegal in China. Um, it has to be a heterosexual marriage. That is seen as a pillar, not just of social harmony, but it's, it's a, really a pillar of political stability. And so one thing that you don't see almost ever in, in official propaganda is really positive depictions of working women who were contributing to China's GDP. So most of the images that you see in on TV or you know online in the papers are of women playing these really traditional virtuous roles. I guess later that that's you know you mentioned the word guojia which is of which is of course country but that word is much much older than the Chinese Communist Party itself which I suppose shows how confucianism is being used in a way as it has been used for numerous governments in China's history to support the idea of authority and when it when it comes to modern women you mentioned urban women who make their own paths i don't know if you've seen this new tv show called nothing but 30 which is about these three female protagonists living in shanghai having chosen various kinds of lives for them themselves including one who doesn't want to get married because she's so career focused so it does seem that these urban women are bucking the trend of traditional family expectations yeah that's a really good question i mean i'm not actually watching a lot of these shows right now i can say that that is very hard for the chinese government to try to force these really traditional gender roles on young women who are really smart and educated, maybe, you know, a lot of them have traveled abroad, maybe they've studied abroad or worked abroad and then come back. I mean, even if they haven't left China, there's just a much greater awareness about, I call it feminism, but, you know, even though feminism itself is a taboo word, and in fact, there have been feminist activists who've been jailed as a result of their feminist activism. So not only is the word itself taboo, it, it can really land you into serious trouble. And so it's not a surprise to me that most women wouldn't want to use that label. But if you put the label of feminism to the side, you can see that generation of women in their 20s and, and in their early 30s are much more aware of sexism in general. They're, they're standing up and speaking out about sexual harassment and sexual assault. There's China has its own version of the Me Too movement that is still going, which is really remarkable in the face of this incredibly powerful system of censorship and internet surveillance and surveillance of all kinds. So there are all these different ways um, that I describe in my book, Betraying Big Brother, so many different ways in which the Chinese government is trying to wipe out any signs of a feminist movement. But it, it's very difficult for the government to do that because this new awareness of um, sexism and 
so many women wanting to realize their own dreams, to become professionally successful. Most of these, particularly college-educated women, do not want to marry early and have babies and stay at home. Most of them want to further their educations. They want to get a good job. You know, they want to realize their dreams, which is, which is really why you're seeing birth rates plummeting in spite of very aggressive efforts on the part of the government to try to get urban couples to have two children when you had more than 30 years of a very draconian so-called one-child policy. But another aspect of this demographic problem is that there's a dramatically different approach to you know, population planning directed at the majority Han Chinese population. So the government wants Han Chinese women to have to get married early and have more children. But on the other hand, if you look at what's happening um, in the, uh, the western parts of the country, particularly in Xinjiang, and you see what is happening, you know, there are these very credible reports of mass sterilization being carried out on Uyghur and Kazakh and other Muslim women. So the government is trying to engineer its population but that doesn't mean that it just wants to increase the birth rate overall. It's also trying to create what it calls a higher quality population. It wants gao su in Chinese. So when it comes to Muslim women who are seen as undesirable, you know, they, they have the government has these policies of um, trying to promote inter-ethnic marriage, um, where a Han Chinese person would marry a Muslim, a Uyghur or Kazakh or other Muslim spouse. And they've also been limiting the births allowed by Muslim women, in particular Uyghur and Kazakh women. So, so it's all part of a, a desire to engineer a particular kind of population, not just boosting the overall number of births, but it also, uh, the government is trying to control what kind of births there are. And so there's this strong element of eugenics in their population planning. Although when it comes to minority women, am I right in saying that they weren't subjected or they had exemptions to the one-child policy? And so when the government is limiting uh, minority women and their birth, it's to two, whereas Han Chinese are encouraging to up to two. Is that, is that right? Yeah, well, that's what the government says. I mean, for decades, the government did allow members of the, any ethnic minority to have one child more than Han Chinese families. And so that what was known as the one child policy really was directed at Han Chinese couples living in the cities. And even in the countryside, you know, Han Chinese would routinely have two children or more. But then um, when it came to, you know, Uyghur or Kazakh Muslim families, there would often be, you know, three children or more. And so just in the last few years, shortly after the Chinese government ended its official, what was known as the one child policy, it began enforcing, so, so now it's adopted a two child policy 
So for Han Chinese couples, that means they're allowed, they're being encouraged to have two children, which is more than they were allowed to have before. But when it comes to ethnic minorities, the, the, the number of children that they're allowed to have has been decreased. Yeah, and, that, and that's certainly more than enough to talk about on a, on a whole podcast of its own. Going forward with women's rights, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about one other aspect of modern life, which is social media. Every year or so, or maybe even more frequently than a year, a really high-profile domestic abuse case comes to the fore on social media, whether it's a video from CCTV or campaign, video interviews with victims, or indeed Lamu, the Tibetan blogger I mentioned in my introduction, who was a live streamer herself. Do you think social media is a positive force for change, or is it actually just allowing the government some leeway because when these big cases come to social media they do get resolved and there is public anger, but then it sort of just dissipates. So do you think social media can promote change or is it just allowing a few different women to cut through every time? Well, that's a, it's a good question. I mean, uh, I would say overall social media is still, because there's such a heavy system of censorship and surveillance, that the internet overall is a force for control used by the Chinese government to control people's opinions and to spread propaganda. However, it is social media is being used by activists to get their message out. It's still being used by ordinary, you know, in the case of domestic violence, ordinary, primarily women, but also men are joining in the LGBTQ community also uses it to spread messages. There are still viral hashtags about, you know, particular cases of abuse, like the latest case of this Tibetan, young Tibetan woman who was killed, brutally killed by her husband, her ex-husband, actually. So the, the government can't completely control everything that is on the internet. I mean, it, I suppose it could. It could completely shut down every single reference to, you know, the injustice of domestic violence or the injustice of uh, feminist uh, being locked up or, or any other dissident's case. But there is some room there, and that's what is very interesting when you look at the social media in China is that there is still a little bit of room for for vibrant discourse and activists are able to use that little bit of space to actually get their message out. And even though these messages tend to be censored very quickly, you know, maybe within seconds of showing up, it's it, the, the, the post will be taken down. But the thing is, China is such a, an enormous country, you know, hundreds of millions of people are online and using social media, that even if the message is taken down, let's say after one day, it's already gotten out and being seen by a lot of people. So there is still a role, I believe, for social media in creating social change. But overall, it's used primarily and used very effectively in very sophisticated ways to spread propaganda and to monitor the population more closely. 
Lisa Holm Fincher, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.